as I read a good bit of 1984 not too long ago, whether our president and his administration have read this book and taken the tax of the people in it, but I don't suspect that has happened purposefully. But there's a character named Benjamin who's a donkey who is not given to factions. And in this animal uprising where animals on a farm have overthrown their dictator, louse of a drunk farmer, and come up with their own revolution, humans are bad, animals are good, four legs good, two legs bad. They're ruled by these two pigs, Napoleon and Snowball. They're being convinced they have to build this windmill. There are promises being made. Huge promises. Everything's going to get better. Food supply is going to increase. Production is going to amplify. And everybody has an opinion. There's debate. There's factions. And Benjamin is the only animal who does not side with either faction. He refused to believe either that the food would become more plentiful or that the windmill would save work. And he said this, windmill or no windmill, my life will go on as it has always gone on, badly. That's how Benjamin is. Whether you do this thing or that thing, my life is going to keep going on. He answers them often with cryptic statements like, have you ever seen a dead donkey? Donkeys live a long time. I'll outlive all of you. And here's what I know. You can make promises about what's going to increase this or enhance that. My life is going to go on as it always has, badly. That's a little pessimistic on a day when we're going to install Corby as our associate pastor. But it gives us a backdrop for pastoral work and for congregational response. Because what Benjamin knew in his bones, but may not have had a resource with which to contend with that knowing, the Apostle Paul likewise knew. I picked this book of Thessalonians because in it, we see Paul very glad because he had been very worried. You think of Paul as worrying? He tells us not to worry and be anxious about anything, but in other places, he says he has the daily burden of his anxiety for all the churches. And in this letter, this church that he got ripped away from because of persecution earlier, he's been, so it seems, beside himself with worry. What's happening to them? Are they being unsettled by trials when their life is turning out to be bad? We told them it would. We promised them it would. We said this is what the life of faith is. Is their faith withering though? Are they abandoning the faith? Are they abandoning the reality that we've set before them that has invaded this present reality? Are they losing track of what they believe? And so he says, so when I could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our fellow worker, 
to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. That's what he's worried about. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials, you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. You can tell because you don't have your stuff. Because some of your friends are in prison because maybe your jaw hurts. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, that's the second time he said that, he couldn't stand it. He didn't have find my friends on iPhone. He couldn't stalk the people he loved and know their whereabouts. He could not FaceTime them. He could not quickly surmise their condition. For this reason, when I could not stand it any longer, I sent to find out about your faith because I was afraid. I was afraid that in some way the tempter may have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. And then he's made happy because Timothy comes back and says, good news, their faith is alive and kicking. Better than any simple mind song. And he has told us about your faith and love, that you long for us like we do for you. With a destiny of trouble, which is the lot, not only of Benjamin the donkey on Animal Farm, but of all those who have received Christ as Lord, the man of sorrows, acquainted with many griefs, the man who was, when he had been affirmed by his father, this is my son, I am wild about him, and I'm so pleased with him, and then immediately in the Gospels he is hurled out into the desert by the Spirit. To be tempted, to be under trial, to be the new Israel. But at least he didn't have any food or water. But he had learned to live off God, and he has told us if we follow him, there are going to be trials, there are going to be disappointments, there is going to be dismay. And Paul is worried. So he sends Timothy. Because he knows what people with a destiny of trouble need more than anything. And the thing that he can offer more than anything is a way to strengthen them in their faith. He can't take their troubles away. He can't make all their disappointments go away. He can't take away the uncertainties of the future. He can't alter what it's like to be identified with the reality of Christ in the middle of a world that's allergic to him he can't do anything about that that how you might feel rejected or abandoned or how lonely it might feel to be a christian in a place where none of the people around you are and you feel silly you feel ostracized they take your stuff eventually they take your reputation they make false accusations against you he can't fix that some suffering is unsolvable But what he is concerned about over and over again is that their faith not wane. Because that's what attaches them to their resources. That's what attaches them to the reality that's larger and stronger and more durable than the one that they can even see before their eyes. So he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage him in the faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. He's excited 
When he hears about their faith, he says, Night and day I pray that I may supply what is lacking in your faith. He says that's the most important thing you could give your attention to. So what does that have to do about you and the Corby? Hopefully, obviously, some of this is already obvious. But I have a word for Corby, given this destiny of trouble that we find ourselves in as Christians, this destiny of suffering that can be so unsettling. And it goes like this, Corby. I call you, I urge you, I enjoin you to talk and listen to God uncommonly often. Carl Bart was once asked by a student, what would you tell a young minister? Corby's an older minister now. He's almost, are you 40 yet? He's close to 40. Looks grown up with that beard. <laughs> and he said, this is my rendition. He said, I would tell him to know his Bible uncommonly well and to love his people, or know his, read his Bible uncommonly often and know his people uncommonly well. I hope, he says, that you will have internalized the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament so that you have this swirling about in your head so that you can then bring it to the people. And so that when you bring it to the people, the people that you like, as they are, unsettled, unsure, not confident, but talk and listen to God uncommonly often. You've heard, perhaps, in John Updike's book, Run, Rabbit Run, there's this Lutheran pastor named Fritz Krupenbach. I mean, I wish that were my name. And he says to this Episcopalian minister who's trying to get her runaway husband back, he says, do you think it's your job to meddle in these people's lives? I know what they teach you in seminary now. This man with hairy fists. The psychology and all that. But I don't agree with it. You think your job is to be an unpaid doctor. To run around and plug up holes and make everything smooth. I don't think that. I don't think that's your job. And running back and forth, you run away from the duty given you by God. To make your faith powerful. When on Sunday morning then, and I would say on Sunday nights, and Wednesday afternoons, and Thursday mornings, when you go out before their faces, we must walk out not worn out with misery, but full of Christ. Hot with Christ. On fire. Burn them with the force of our belief. This is why they come. Why else would they pay us? Anything we can do and say, anyone can do and say. They have doctors and lawyers, and now everybody's got a therapist like a dentist. Make mo- That's my comment. Make no mistake. Now, I'm serious. Make no mistake. There is nothing but Christ for us. All the rest, all this decency and busyness is nothing. It's devil's work. Those are strong words. I like the emphasis. That we are these people who have been privileged with ministry of word and prayer. And nobody, almost nobody's checking up on us to make sure 
How much are you praying? It'll just have to be evident. How much time are you ingesting this reality of the world that's easily forgotten because we all preference what we can see? I call you, therefore, to talk and listen to God in his scriptures and talk to him in prayer uncommonly often for these people. There ought to be nobody in this congregation that worries about this congregation more than you and me and our elders. I call you to worry for them and then to take up that worry to God in prayer. Jack Miller once told a man, I think you should try to pray twice as much as you think you have time for. Talk and listen to God uncommonly often and love these people Rock Creek Fellowship uncommonly well. Part of loving them, as I said, is worrying for them. It's being concerned about what is going on in their faith. What's going on in their work? What's going on in their suffering? When they are facing grave disappointment, this disappointment diminishes us. It diminishes our vision. It can shrink our capacity. We worry for their faith and take that to God and take that, what you get from God, to them gently, compassionately, eagerly, just as you have been doing. One of my favorite things that I notice that is not noticeable about Corby's work and all the different things he does and preaching and leading worship and missions committee and college group and meeting with men and leading small groups, missions committee and Peru trips, is that after our session meetings, after we've eaten, Corby diligently cleans up the whole place while we debrief. And I do like a thing or two. And he's like busying around and cleaning dishes and taking out trash I think that's a pretty good metaphor for pastoral work. Cleaning up and taking out trash and doing little things because you're concerned so that the next people who come don't have to fiddle with a mess. You're helping out your fellow elders so they don't have to do that stuff. It's been a beautiful thing, and that's part of how you love this congregation. I urge you to keep at it. Because they face, we face a destiny of trouble. And God has put you and me and our elders and each other in the midst of those troubles to be a broker of compassion. And congregation, in this destiny of trouble, God has provided Corby to you. You've endorsed his work among us and recognized what he's done so far, and you're calling him to be a shepherd and saying, we will be shepherded by you and we will support you. And I would urge you to do two things. They're similar to what I told Corby. I would urge you to talk to God about Corby. I mean, if you have complaints about him, do that too. Talk to God about it. If you think he's not doing something right, talk to God about it. Ask God to help him and me. And our elders ask ask him to help us to grow, to fill out our deficits, to fill us with Christ. I'm not sure it always occurs to us. 
But there's a there's an insecurity that comes with this kind of work. The Apostle Paul could say things like, follow me as I follow Christ. I don't think Pastor Corby and I feel quite as confident in saying things like that. I wish we could. The Apostle Paul is always asking people to pray for him. Pray for me. That when I open my mouth, words would be given me that I might make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray for me that the message of the gospel would spread rapidly. He's not going to ask you. I'm asking you. Pray for this man and his family. It's a hard work. It's a delightful work. And it's an uncertain work. And he needs resourcing from heaven. So talk to God about Corby. And then talk to Corby about what God is doing through him in our midst because it won't always be clear to him. I heard a pastor one time say, I heard a pastor say of a pastor, I sometimes come home at the end of the day and flush the toilet just to feel like I accomplished something that day. <laughs> I at least did that. I flushed the toilet. Because your work is in constant flux. It's like perennial parenting. Everybody is in a dynamic state. Some people are flourishing and some people are diminishing. Some people are growing and some people are running away. And whatever's happening today won't be the case in a month. And you never know how you did. And you never know how it's going. You have to learn to be a detective and you have to learn to watch and listen to what's happening and what God's people are doing. So it's so profoundly helpful when you hear things. I called Lori Craig last night. Buford, her husband's a vigorous man, just got sick, I think, for the first time in his life at age 75. Otherwise, he would have built a house this weekend and carried a dump truck on his back. (laughs) But Lori, I call her with some amount of sheepishness. You know why? Because I've been worried. And I've been worried that I've been letting them down. I've been worried that I haven't done enough for them, that I haven't secured enough help for them as they're trying to get their house ready. That's the burden I've been carrying. And when I talked to Lori, she was delightful, which is not uncommon. And she was excited, which is not uncommon. And she said, my small group is amazing. They've been here helping us finish this house. We're so much further along than we ever would have been without them. It's so incredible, and I am so happy. And that woman, in her enthusiasm, in her praise of God's work through her small group, the soul food group, and the the Warlands, and the Abels, and the Honeykees, and whoever else I'm sure I'm leaving out. I know there's a lot, and forgive me. She gave me a gift because she told me about what God was doing. And it set me at ease. It reminded me again, oh, 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 everything is not my responsibility. And God is at work. And you just reminded me of it because you told me. 
and I had nothing to do with it. Praise be. Talk to Corby about God's action. I got a text message that went something like this. Hey. Somebody who went to Peru with Corby said, Corby led us while we were here in a way I simply can't explain. He was often asked to preach on the fly, as I would put it in my simple slang. And when he did, I mean, interpreters, children, screaming, rain, mud, exhaustion. That's like sounds like your house, right? <laughs> and I'm just going to... And she says... This is Becky who said this, Becky. I'm just going to say, call it a day. This is too much scenarios. No one would fault him for saying, if it's okay, I need some time to study, to prepare, to polish what I'm going to say, maybe even eat, nap, collect myself. I, I think you get the idea. But what astounded and comforted me in ways I can't explain was my overwhelming assurance that the Holy Spirit of the God of the universe was so pleased and connected to Corby and Rachel, I might add, that it blew around that miserable place and showed us relentless hope and beauty like we were truly getting glimpses into the promises of heaven. Does that make sense, she said? Yes, it makes sense. Perfect. I would go on, but basically I'm trying to share just one example when I have prayed, silently of course, no way. We get that guy. How could Rock Creek be so blessed to have this? This fits like a glove. And funny, too. Kind of pastoral help for Eric in the session. Wowza. That's a Greek term. Wowza. God really knew exactly what RCF needed. Kind of guy. Amen, indeed. My only question, the only unclarity to me about that text, is if you were going to get it eventually or if she told you the same thing. And she has. Good job. You did. Awesome. Sometimes people tell me things like this, and my first thought is, that's awesome. My second thought is, have you told him? Because he can live off of that for at least two or three days. And even Paul says, now we really live. Because we know you're standing firm in the faith. And the, the Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking in the faith. This is a thing when you're investing your life. You want to know, is God at work? Is this useless? And when you share the stories around, we all get emboldened. When you talk to God about Corby and you talk to Corby about God and Corby, when you talk and listen to God uncommonly often and and love these people uncommonly well. We will be a community that is congenial to faith that won't wear out. Even in the midst of unsettled and unsettling times. We're glad you're here. We're glad we, I'm speaking for Corby, get to be among you. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. As we take 
now vows as a congregation, and as Corby takes vows to this congregation, all before you, we ask that these would tether us together, that they would, like marital vows, keep our mutual love going. And as Paul urged us, we pray that you would give us an increase of love for each other and for everyone else as we do these important works. And thank you for all your good gifts to us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. One of our elders, Thomas Hayes, is going to give a charge and read the vows to Corby. Corby, you stand, yeah. Please. Corby, uh, last yesterday, a couple of times yesterday, I went, and, and for those of you who don't, don't know, I had the privilege of being a teacher at Christ Prez in Nashville when Corby was a student there. So I pulled down some old yearbooks just to <clears throat> reminisce um, yesterday. There's some good stuff in there, Corby. I think one of my favorite, uh, well, a couple of highlights. One was... Um, your superlative that your classmates gave you was uh, most likely to become a house husband. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but my personal favorite being a, a, a language teacher was your, there was a section in the yearbook on the language department and you had a quote in there at the time you were taking Spanish and you said, I really enjoy... Uh, Senorita Jenkins' class, especially her stories about her mission trips. And then you added, the pictures were educational and interesting. <laughs> it is a class about words, though, ultimately. <laughs> <clears throat> but in that reminiscing, uh, I was reminded that all I really have been... Um, is a witness, and I've been fortunate to be a witness of a lot of uh, young people's lives, and in your case, I've been a witness for a, a very long time, and to tie into something you started uh, this morning with a call to worship, um, what I've witnessed in you, you can't fake. I had a, a partner, a law partner that I used to work with, uh, who, who used to say, uh, when he talked about the merits of telling the truth, he said, a lie uh, you have to tell a thousand times, but the truth you just have to tell once. <clears throat> I'm getting a little emotional. So in you, I've witnessed the truth told once. Um, and that's the truth of the gospel told over a long period of time. Um, and it has transformed you and shaped you. Um, I have some favorite individual events in that long period of witnessing. I think my absolute favorite is 
at the end of a football practice when the sun is setting and everyone's huddled and uh, you would stand up, you probably weren't much older than Hank, and uh, you would give these earnest prayers, um, and I would break the rules and peek and watch you, and <laughs> your face was intense, and they were powerful. Uh, and then I, another fond one is I witnessed you pursue this job, and I say it that way because I think the first time you pursued it, you were thinking of it, I really need a job, and I, you drove down here, and we, we met, and, and you really wanted this job, but since then, uh, you've pursued us, you've pursued this body, um, and you've done that work well, um, and now I get to be a witness of the formal sort of culmination of all of us pursuing you. And so my part in this is just to ask you a few questions. So here we go. Corby, are you now willing to serve this congregation uh, as our associate pastor, agreeable to your declaration and accepting its call? Do you conscientiously believe and declare as far as you know your own heart that in taking upon you this charge, you are influenced by a sincere desire to promote the glory of God and the good of the church? And do you solemnly promise that by the assistance of the grace of God, you will endeavor faithfully to discharge all the duties of associate pastor to this congregation and will be careful to conduct yourself in all respects in a manner becoming a minister of the gospel of Christ. Good morning. My name is Dave Worland. I'm an elder from the practice church that Eric goes to before he comes here. Um, <laughs> It's exciting to come and hear him speak again with such, I thought, man, he's good. I may have to start anyway. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Eric. You're a blessing. And you know, uh, Corby, we've been talking a lot about you today, but it's not all about you. Uh, Everything that's going on here today affects all of us, all of us. And I just want to give you a little image of something to remember so that every, every month when we gather together, we remember what we're doing. And this is really a big deal. This is a big deal for Rock Creek. It is, this is only the second time that we've had an associate pastor. And frankly, for some of us, it may be the last associate pastor that we know. I mean, some of us, well, not in this congregation, but in our other congregation... <laughs> We're getting a little, a little uh, older, and it, 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 he may be the last one. And I'll tell you, this church has done an amazing job both finding him, loving him, and bringing him in and seeing this. But I want to share with you an image that may help us remember what Corby does with us and for us every month. Uh, there's Henry Nowen, who some of you may know is a dead theologian, and I'm told they're always the best ones to quote because they can't disagree with what you've said. But Henry did a a series that he called Beloved, where he was challenging people to accept the, the, the title that God has given them, that they are beloved 
in his eyes, that he loves every one of us. We are his beloved. And the image that he gives is the idea of communion. And if you think about communion, we take this loaf of bread and we break it and we bless it. And it, I'm sorry, we take it, we bless it, we break it, and then we give it. And that's what God wants for us. You know, God has chosen you as his beloved. God has chosen me. God has certainly chosen Corby to, and his whole family to be here. What an incredible blessing they are as a family. We've talked a lot about Corby, but all of us have been blessed by his family. We are, God has chosen us in a very unique place right now. We can't forget that. That wasn't by accident. God loves us so much. He wanted us to have Corby to help bless us. Then there's this blessing. God's saying good things about us. God says good things about us all the time. He loves us. But then it's broken. And all of us are broken. All of us are broken. All of us have things in our lives that we hope other people around us don't find out about. All of us have things in our lives that after we do something, we think, why did I do that? Lord, I have been coming to you for years trying to get this out of my life, but it's still there. I'm broken. And most of the time, we place that under the curse. Henry Nouwen challenges us to place that under the blessing. God loves us so much. We have him to go to. And he has given us a church, a body of believers that love each other enough that we care for each other. And now he has given us an associate pastor that loves us so much that in that brokenness, it falls under the blessing, not under the curse. And the last is, it's given. It's given. God has given us to his world. God has not asked us to be successful at where we are, but to be fruitful for where we are. We are to be the food and the drink for others. And we cannot do that alone. He created church for a reason. He created congregations for a reason. And he called pastors for a reason. And I know that he has called these pastors to be in our lives at this time, in this season, in this reason, for us to be fruitful. So as I read these, this questions for the congregation, what I'm going to ask you to do is to, res- to respond, if you're willing to, to respond, we will. But don't do it quietly. I want the presbytery to hear that we are willing to do these things because we want Corby, we love Corby, and we want to do with him what God will do with us in our lives. Do you, do we, the people of this congregation, continue to profess your readiness to receive Pastor Corby, whom you have called to be your associate pastor? Good job. 
Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love and submit to him in the due exercise of discipline? We will. Do you promise to encourage him in his labors and to assist his endeavors for your instruction and for spiritual edification? We will. And do you engage to continue to him while he is your pastor that competent worldly maintenance which you have promised, and to furnish him with whatever you may see needful for the honor of religion and for his comfort among you.